Well, we're going to do part two tonight. I'm going to close the little two-part series I did on what do you want? What do you want? Matthew chapter 20, verse 29 says, as Jesus and the disciples left the town of Jericho, a large crowd followed behind. You know, there's always a crowd But in the midst of a crowd, there's always a small group of people who see things differently and hear things differently. Every time massive change has been effected in the life of the church, it's been determined by a small group of people who have decided to reach out to God for everything that he's promised. And for a while, these people generally create a little discomfort for others. And as happened here, the same thing. Look in verse 30. Through verse 34. Two blind men were sitting beside the road. When they heard that Jesus was coming that way, they began shouting, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Shut up, be quiet, the crowd yelled at them. But they only shouted louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. When Jesus heard them, he stopped and he said, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, they said, we want to see. And Jesus felt compassion for them, touched their eyes, and instantly they could see. Then they followed him. You know, at any point in history since the resurrection of Jesus, anyone like these blind men who has seen that in Jesus was the solution to their lives and their predicament, they've become the people who have affected change. People like this who march to the beat of a different drum and for a season look different, sound different, and create some discomfort. You know, they, they, they irritate the people around them, particularly religious people. But even in business, in sports, and in the marketplace, people who make a big change in the world upset the status quo. Would you agree? And people that are comfortable just don't like it. And so they're typically negative. Whenever somebody else reaches for more than we've reached for, it often exposes in us the lack that's there. These blind men were not going to be shut up. They were shouting at the top of their lungs for Jesus to give them some attention. They would not be silenced. You know, I've been in a few prayer meetings where somebody began to pray real loud, and you could sense the discomfort of people around them immediately. Sometimes now, of course, sometimes people are allowed just to be noticed. But sometimes it's something in somebody that says, I believe there's access to God and I'm going there and I'm coming back with something. And folks, we need some of that right in the midst of the church. That's not unbiblical. Throughout the history of the church, there have been people who have had a capacity to get from God what they needed and wanted. And they wouldn't let go of him until they did. Moses went to God and said, I want to see your glory. And you know, when these people made a request like that, to us it seems almost audacious, maybe arrogant, but God seems to be pleased with the passion. You know, I think that's why he says, I wish you were hot or cold. I'm cold tonight, Lord. I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I've got no use for you. You know, Jacob, after years of frustration, finally realized what he needed, and he reached a point where he's left alone with God. And he tells the angel of God, I won't let you go until you bless me. Boy, that's that's desperation. 
That's total commitment. Elisha looks at the great prophet Elijah, and that was one of God's favorites, one of his favorite prophets who wielded unusual power. When he came to town, people got scared because they didn't know what he's going to do or what he was going to reveal. See, and, and this young prophet says to this old great prophet, I want a double portion of what you've got. Wow. See, it, it doesn't matter what you and I have experienced or what you and I have seen. That doesn't define what God is capable of. He can do a whole lot more. Never let your history define what God can and will do for you. Let the Bible define what God can and will do. Does that make sense? Don't. If you've said, well, I've only seen that much, that doesn't define what God can do. He says, now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all you ask or think. That means he can do a lot more than the diddly squat you and I have had so far. A lot more. That's why I'm always ought to be optimistic, looking forward to the future for more, for more. See, our future is loaded with possibilities. We ought to be the most positive people on earth. And we ought to know our Redeemer lives. That's what makes anything possible. So Jesus asked the question, what do you want? Now, why would you ask a blind man shouting on the side of the road, what do you want? I mean, to me, it would seem obvious. If Jesus asked you tonight that question, what do you want me to do for you? I would say, Make this cold weather go away. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. What, well, wouldn't you? Hello. All right. What would you say if Jesus asked you that question? And many of you wouldn't know what you want. So you probably wouldn't get what you needed. Now notice, the nature of the wanting by those who received what they wanted from God was not casual. They didn't say what young people say today, whatever not when they came to God. It was intense. It was passionate. It was specific. They had to talk about what it was, and they wouldn't shut up about it. Maybe some of you are ex maybe afraid to express that because somebody might check up on you and ask, how's it going? This kind of wanting will risk embarrassment and even rejection. These blind men could not shut up. They couldn't be made to be quiet. If the one thing you want this year is a husband or a wife, declare it. Describe him or her. What kind of a person do you want to be at the end of this 2021? What kind of changes do you want to see? How much money do you want to earn? How much do you want to give? What would you like to do? What do you want me to do for you? That's the question Jesus asked multiple times in Scripture. See, if our praying isn't specific, it'll be aimless, it'll be generic, and it'll ultimately lead to crisis-centered praying. And we said last week, crisis-centered praying seldom works. The biblical model is cultivating a life of faith day by day so that when the crisis comes, you're in shape. You've built into your life that which will not allow you, that, that will allow you to endure the crisis. See? And it'll get you to the other side. You're ready for it. It won't. You don't say, gee, I need to start praying about this. No, because it's daily faith, daily prayer, daily communicating with God coming in and going out. It's just another day, another crisis. This too will pass, and it will. 
See, our approach to God has to be rooted in our confidence that he does care about us and that he has said he will do what he says that he will do. I believe that. The people who got what they wanted from God were people convinced God was everything he declared himself to be. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him has to believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. In other words, I'm believing if it's biblical, I'm going to get what I ask. Smith Wigglesworth was asked one time, how do you get moved by the spirit? He said, you got the wrong approach. I don't get moved by the spirit. I move the spirit. And his life was characterized by some pretty remarkable accounts of faith. I wonder if God could be waiting on you and I to do something while we're waiting on him to do something. Let me quickly give you three examples of people who failed to receive what they needed from God. And notice they had the opportunity to get from God what they wanted and needed, but they failed to get it. So let's make certain we don't make these same mistakes. The first one is in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 11 through 14. And it says, the rest of the events of Asa's reign from beginning to end are recorded in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa developed a serious foot disease. Yet even with the severity of his disease, he did not seek the Lord's help, but turned only to his physicians. So he died in the 41st year of his reign. He was buried in the tomb he had carved out for himself in the city of David. He was laid on a bed perfumed with sweet spices and fragrant ointments, and the people built a huge funeral fire in his honor. Now, by the way, let me pause and say this. He did not condemn going to a doctor. He just said he only went to a doctor and didn't seek the Lord. See, I get some goofy people sometimes. Luke was a physician. He that are sick don't need a, need a physician, Jesus said. The, the point was, you go to God first for your need, and then you seek medical attention as well. But this guy apparently sought nothing from the Lord, and he died. So he didn't get what he wanted, but he's still honored, and he's loved by God. But what's the purpose of dying if you haven't fulfilled the full potential that was designed for your life? See, this story is the result of prayerlessness. King Asa allowed crisis to emerge in his life, and even though he was at death's door, he still chose not to go to God. Hey, don't check out before your time. Talk to God about it. You could be at death's door and recover. Did you know that? I don't believe the enemy can take you out unless you become passive and compliant and you don't declare what God has said and resist the enemy. I don't think he can take you out before God's ready. No weapon formed against you can prosper. Our days are numbered in a book. I live on that. I absolutely believe that to the core of my being. You can, hurt, you can attack me. You can hurt me. You can delay me. But over and over, Scripture says, but his time was not yet come. His time was not yet come. But you got to do some resisting. Paul did. Jesus did. And you do. So you don't lay down and die because you got a bad diagnosis or a bad situation. You fight the good fight of faith. I know people in the life of this church who will choose to talk to me 
or some of our pastors, ladies or men, before they talk to God. Now, there's nothing wrong with seeking counsel. That's biblical. But let me urge everybody, the first thing you ought to do is go to God first. The first thing. I guarantee you, if you make that a practice in your life, you'll get more from him than you'll ever get from me or the staff on any day. And the thing that will produce confidence in your life is when you go to God and you get from him what you needed. See, if, you only, if you're only getting your food off somebody else's plate, it won't hold you in the long run. You got to have your own confidence in God, your own faith in God. Paul said, I pray without ceasing. No matter where he was or what he was doing, Paul was preoccupied with inviting God into every aspect of his life. And I think believers struggle with that idea that God would be concerned with even the small things about your life or mine. Shucks, I pray for parking places. Well, I, I just don't think that would please the Lord. Well, good. I hope you park four miles away. I'm praying for a parking place up close, right? Go to God for everything you need. Arthur Pink wrote, prayer ought to be as breathing is in the life of a believer. Just that normal. Some people don't get what they want because they don't ask. James chapter 4, verse 2. You don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. Ask. Keep on asking. Ask big. Why would you ask God for some dipstick little something? Lord, I just hope I can pay the rent. No, ask him for a better job so you can pay the house payment, so you can buy the thing. Ask something big. Ask that girl out that you've been looking at, <laughs> talking to others about. You know, do, do something. Uh, well, I, she might say no. Well, you got no going for you now. She might say yes. Ask. The Bible is big on asking. Ask. I don't know who taught you that you don't want to ask too big. Ask really big. Make God back up and say, whoa, hold it. Never did that ever happen in Scripture. Never did God rebuke anybody for asking too much. But three times he rebuked Israel for asking too little. And I'll prove that in a minute. Second illustration, 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 14 through 19. 2 Kings, got it? says, when Elisha was in his last illness, King Joash of Israel visited him and wept over him. My father, my father, I see the chariots and charioteers of Israel, he cried. So the prophet Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows. And the king did as he was told. Elisha told him, put your hand on the bow. And Elisha laid his own hands on the king's hands. Then he commanded, open that eastern window. And he opened it. Then he said, shoot. So he shot an arrow. Elisha proclaimed, this is the Lord's arrow, an arrow of victory over Syria, for you will completely conquer the Arameans at Aphek. Then he said, now pick up the other arrows and strike them against the ground. So the king picked them up and struck the ground three times. But the man of God was angry with him. You should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have beaten Syria until it was entirely destroyed. Now you will only be victorious three times. 
This lack comes from the absence of passion. Here is the prophet Elisha, the man of a double portion anointing, who's given a king an opportunity to end his life in a place of strength and victory and establishing God's glory. But instead of seizing the moment, he's timid. And timidity is not a godly characteristic. The Holy Spirit comes to make you bold, to say things you would not normally say. You ever listen to a drunk? A drunk will say some things he should never say. The Bible says, be not drunk with alcohol, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, when God's Spirit has a good measure of control of you, under that anointing, you would do, act, and say something your little timid self might not do. That's why he wants you to be bold. Proverbs 28.1, the righteous are as bold as lions. That's an attribute. Why aren't we, why are we so passive? Be bold. So because of lack of passion, you know, this poor guy didn't get squat. Elisha had passion when he approached Elijah and asked for a double portion, and he got twice what he ever dreamed about. And here, this king gets the same opportunity. How would you like that opportunity? Opportunity, and he doesn't take it. You know, beat the ground a dozen times. Get more than you anticipated. Cry out, shout, and say, I won't settle for anything less than everything God has promised for me. I want it all. I want every bit. That's the way. Well, that just seems so odd. Oh, you've been hanging around Episcopalians too long. Get bold. Ask God big. He likes that. And all we do is read Scripture. And if I'm not Bible, then rebuke me. But he's telling us that we should approach him audaciously and big. Nobody ever taught me that going to church ever. Hey, Rick, pray big, think big, dream big, ask big. I never heard that in my life. How many of you grew up hearing that? Now the school bus is out there. John, don't forget, take a risk, honey. Go big or go home. We're producing Girl Scouts. Instead of warriors, believers don't usually ask for too much. They usually settle for too little. And God's saying, is that all you want? Three, three licks? Three victories? Why don't you keep striking the ground? Go big. This is where the prophet of God is angry because he doesn't even have a passion to want something great that he's been offered. Well, what inspires passion? A couple of things. You know, how about knowing that you're loved? Uh, that makes you want to do well, I think. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave himself for us. Why did Jesus say the ones who have much, who have been forgiven much, love much? See, when you're forgiven much, you know somebody's loved on you. And reciprocally, you want to love back. Passion is inspired in the heart of people who recognize they've been loved by God. I, 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 I don't all my life. I don't like myself all the time, <laughs> but I have never doubted God loved me all the time. Never doubted that. He loved us while we were yet sinners. Come on. How can you beat that for crying out loud? And then another, another thought about passion, knowing your purpose, what God made you for. Without knowing your purpose, life is just pumping blood, an existence. 
I believe there is a word from God to every person that wants to get it to find out what God made you for. He tells you who you are and what you're for. Now, you don't discover that overnight. It's a process. You know, I was thinking in the last few years, I enjoy my life and purpose a whole lot more now, and I think my best years are just ahead of me. My first years were wondering if I'd even make it at all. So in progress, we ought to be doing better and have a better outlook on our future, knowing our purpose. You can kind of chill from the striving. Because when God set you and God get made you for a purpose, and nothing can knock you off of that. And that gives you confidence. It really does give you confidence. See, we all see dimly at first, Paul says. Then things begin to come clearer as we, as we grow older, as we have more experience with God. But know that purpose inspires passion. For this cause, you have come to the kingdom. See? And, and a third one. Know your strength and work with them. You know, I don't care if you're an attorney or you're going in construction. You're not good at everything. You're good at something. Stay with that something. Build on it. I was reading an article that said most millionaires made B's and C's in school. Their average SAT score was 1190. Not good enough to get into top-notch schools. In fact, most millionaires were told they weren't smart enough to succeed. But these people chose careers that match their strength. That's what what brings success and fulfillment. There was a guy in Tennessee who passed away about two or three years ago, Donald Saunders. He's in the junk business. This 64-year-old heads a company he founded called Southern Bloomer Manufacturing in Bristol, Tennessee. You can Google him. He takes scrap cloth and he makes underwear for prisons. And then from the leftovers, he makes strips for cleaning guns. He doesn't have a master's degree in business. In fact, he went to high school only one year. But by working hard, working smart, and capitalizing on an idea nobody else had thought about, O'Sooner was a millionaire by the time he was 24 years old. We put too much emphasis on correcting our weaknesses. And you can put so much time on your weaknesses, your strengths begin to atrophy. So start to work with your strengths. Weaknesses will begin to take care of themselves. I read a book, oh gosh, maybe 10 years ago, called Soar With Your Strength. You could get it at Barnes & Noble. I think it was 14 bucks. And the two authors said, it's not a Christian book, but it ought to be, said, you can never make a weakness your strength. Well, my child is just off the charts in these subjects, but she just can't handle math. So what does the typical American do? Let's give her more math. And they never get better at math. What you do is you give them more of their strength. And you just manage the weakness. And the little bit of effort that you put into the strength gets you exponentially a higher return. You can put tons and tons into your weakness and measurably get maybe a little, if any. That's why, well, I'll take car dealerships. They got a guy who's last in sales consistently. And he has to go to the seminars, sales training. He does all that, and he still stays on the bottom. 
You know why? Sales is not his strength. Well, I can make a salesman out of the end, you're nuts. You cannot. There are people that couldn't give away $100 bills, or, and there are people who can sell fur coats on Waikiki Beach. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's a, my friend Art over here, he could sell spa memberships or all-state insurance or, or, or tickets to Kung Fu, whatever it is. It's a gift. It's a gift. You can't go to a seminar for a gift. You can improve on it, but you can't, you can't go to a seminar and get a gift. And so find out what you do well. Really, get, get into business, get into, uh, in, in the business, get into an area where you're just strong. It comes naturally. The more you do it, the better you get at it. But a weakness, the more you do it, the more you hate yourself and you don't like it. And you don't see a lot of improvement. They're just things I don't like to do. But when you get to do what you love to do and what you're good at doing, you're going to love it. But, you know, I don't like administrative meetings. I don't like financial statements and I don't like counseling. If I had to do that, I'd be on narcotics. I couldn't do that. That's not my strength. So you need a team around you where that weakness is made up by this person's strength. You delegate your weakness, you soar with your strength. Does that make sense? Yeah. There, there are people who could be great on a team, like in a church. They could be great teaching a class, counseling people, and they would have more impact than being the head of their own church of 175 people because that's not their gift. But because they want that, I am the pastor, I am the leader, and they're not. That's sad. So to me, find out where I can do pretty good and add value and grow and get promoted. Get in that and start, and watch your children. So, so money and time, push them in the area of their strength, not your desire, their strength what they're good at. Well, this, my other child's strength is this. Don't compare them. They're different. Push them in the area of their strength. Okay. And then hang around passionate people. How about that for an idea? Hang around passionate people. They got a fire in their belly. It rubs off on you. He that walks with wise men shall be wise. You, you can feel it when you're around them. I love to be around people that just love what they do. You know, this, this, this third third guy that didn't get what he needed, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10. It says, later the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. Ask me for a sign to prove that I will crush your enemies as I promised. Ask for anything you like and make it as difficult as you want. Can you imagine that? But the king refused. No, he said, I will not test the Lord like that. And the next verses tell you judgment came on him. So the first example of people who failed to get what they needed and wanted from God was prayerlessness. The second example, passionlessness. And this last one, false humility. False humility is a religious spirit. And we often get confused and deceived by it in church life. You know why? It's got a language. False humility has a language. People with false humility always speak in a self-depreciating uh, way about themselves. They go out of their way to tell you how useless they are, and it's all in the name of protecting themselves in an attitude of humility. Fake, not real. See, whenever I hear people speaking consistently, 
badly about themselves. It's a reflection of a condition in the heart called the spirit of poverty. Self-disqualification, self-doubt, self-loathing did not come from God. And they're indicative of a very serious problem. False humility also has postures. Sometimes the first person to fall on their knees in front of a crowd is the one wanting to tell you something to gain attention. False humility is the hardest thing to get a handle on because it's something between God and that person. You know, there are a lot of confident, bold people who have true humility in the heart. And they're known by God. King David was an amazing man with amazing accomplishments, but there was also something in his heart God loved. God saw what was inside of this man and secret. And what you and I see is not what God sees. In fact, God, speaking of David, says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. See, true humility might look and sound differently than you might think. People living in false humility can't accept compliments. They will tell you how stupid they are, how inadequate they are in some area. They will deflect attention away from the thing you're trying to recognize in them. So King Asaz gets an incredible offer by God. How would you like this? Hey, Sparky, ask me anything you want. Make it as difficult as you like, and I'll do it for you. And in the name of false humility, Ahaz says, I will not test the Lord like that. Doesn't that sound so religious? Makes God sick. That's why there's little joy for many believers, because they ask not. Well, I'm not worthy. Well, who am I to think I could ask God for anything? You're his child. You've been adopted into his family. I'm going to talk about adoption next week. You need to hear this one because that's what God's done for you. And it's not like an American adoption at all. And I hope you'll tune in, all right? But they don't ask. And they're doing it in the stupid name of false humility. Hebrews 4 verse 16 says, Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and find grace to help when we need it most. Wow. See, God's heart is toward you. Now, there are some churches that want you to just get down and crawl before the Lord. Pious humility. I would throw up if my kids came to me like that. Would you? I, <clears throat> if your kids are normal, they'll run in, interrupt you. They'll ask you for something. Dad, can I have the car tonight? Uh, uh, Daddy, can I have $20? Or Dad, can I have some? Daddy, would you get this? I don't see any crawling in my family. I see a lot of asking and boldness, like they think I'm going to do it. And I usually do it. And I'm trying to say, this is our Heavenly Father. If you being evil know how to give good things to your children, how much more will the Father give to those that ask Him? I'm telling you, jack it up. Let's do some asking, some powerful, big asking. You come before God boldly. He's paid for you with his own blood. You're adopted into his family. Nothing can separate you from him. His eye is on you all the time. Every hair on your head is not, and for some of you that's easy, but every hair <coughs> is, is numbered. And I'm thinking, what can separate me from the love of God? Nothing, nothing, he says. See, 
His promises are yes and amen. And if we're not receiving, we're probably not meeting the terms. All right. Here's a couple of reasons we don't receive. Number one, time delay. Time delay. Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. says, for 21 days, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. Then Michael, one of the archangels, came to help me. And I left him there with the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. So Daniel's prayed and prayed and prayed, and God responded immediately. But it took the angel 21 days to get through to Daniel. He was being resisted by a greater authority, the prince of Persia. So God sent Gabriel, uh, 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 Michael, the warring archangel, to stop that prince so the angel could get the, the message to him. 21 days, three weeks. So accept the fact that in regard to your prayers, there are times of spiritual warfare. Delay is not always denial. Delay requires perseverance. Hang in there. Ask and keep on asking. Seek, keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. In the Greek, it is the continuous case. It's not like, well, I asked once. Ask, keep on asking. Seek, keep on seeking, and, and then you keep on finding. But God wants you to continue, continue, continue. And second, sometimes there's denial. Sometimes the answer's no. And like little children, we stomp our feet and we say, how dare you say no? But a no from God is a good response if it's the right one. D David wanted to build a, a temple for God. And God said, you're a man of blood and war. No. But he allowed Solomon, his son, to build it. But God was so pleased that David wanted to, he blessed his whole household and family for generations in the future. And third, there's cardiac confusion. 1 John chapter 3, verse 21 and 22 says, Dear friends, if we don't feel guilty, we can come to God with bold confidence. And we will receive from him whatever we ask because we obey him and do the things that please him. And remember Hebrews 4, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. The life lived in obedience produces a life of confidence. You know, occasionally we may do something that violates our conscience. Well, simple, correct it quickly. But if you live consistently violating your conscience, it will undermine your confidence in God. And that's one of the tools of the devil, guilt, shame, and condemnation. But Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation to those in Christ. He's already taken that from you. So he can't stop me from coming boldly to my God to get what I need. But also watch false condemnation. The devil is called the accuser of the brethren. And he will often cause you to feel inadequate and unworthy as you pray. But let the devil know, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And with that basis, I can come boldly to God because he told me to do so. If my children called to me apologizing for their existence, it would embarrass me. And fourth, misguided motivation will stop you, will hinder our prayer. James 4, verse 3. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. <laughs> Everything good for me is not pleasurable. Well, it's like eating your vegetables, right? Versus dessert. 
Now, God will often give us things that do bring pleasure. But if that's my only desire, I then won't desire what I need because what I need might be painful. You know, I might need to do a little repentance. I might need to go to somebody with an offense and apologize. How many of you know that ain't fun? That's painful, but it's good. But it's good. See? Number five, hidden disobedience. Psalm 66, verse 18. Psalm 66, verse 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So this is hidden, unaddressed sin. It's where we behave as though God doesn't see it. Number six, relational harshness. Relational harshness. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. Sorry, this just flashed in my head. I know it's dangerous. When Sin and I were first married, in those early days of lots of stupid, you know, and things and selfishness, I remember when we got in an argument, I got sick a day later. And then uh, that passed by. But Cindy would say, God's, see there, God's judging you for that. And then my month went by. We had another pretty, pretty hot argument. I got sick again, had to go to bed. She said, see, now pretty soon I start listening. I'm thinking, this is not a good deal. Now, I don't know if this is good doctrine, but this is not working out real good. And, and it, it probably allows the enemy just to get in and do a little work, you know. So we learned to, to get, first of all, she had to learn to quit saying God's judging you. And I had to quit arguing and try to come to some, some, some agreement without hostility. But I'll never forget that. It's funny. I forgive you, but I still remember. <laughs> every, t- every time we argue, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm going to bed sick. I'm thinking, what in the dickens is going on? Now, I'm just sharing with you. Now, I know it's never happened to any of you. Certainly not. But it sure did me. So if we don't learn to love each other as we love ourselves, to treat one another with kindness, compassion, and mercy, our capacity to pray gets inhibited. That's all I'm saying. Watch out. Seven, double-mindedness. James 1, verse 6 and 7. But when you ask God, be sure your faith is in God alone. Don't waver for a person with a divided loyalty or double-minded is unstable like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Well, yeah, well, no. Well, yeah, well, no. Double-mindedness. Don't you put your trust in a double-minded person? God won't even give you anything. Make up your mind and go for it. Don't be double-minded. Be single-minded. If you decide to pursue God over something, lay it out, stick with it, no matter what. There will be setbacks. There will be obstacles, delays, and difficulties, and some disappointments. But stick with it. Abraham stuck with it at 100 years of age and got what God said. Don't waver. And number eight, a stubborn refusal to learn. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 28 through 33. 
When they cry for help, I will not answer. Though they anxiously search for me, they will not find me. For they hated knowledge and chose not to fear the Lord. They rejected my advice and paid no attention when I corrected them. Therefore, they must eat the bitter fruit of living their own way, choking on their own schemes. For simpletons turn away from me to death. Fools are destroyed by their own complacency. But all who listen to me will live in peace, untouched by fear or harm. That describes somebody who in the face of clear evidence to the contrary that says there is a God and that he's a loving God set themselves intentionally against it. So tonight, I beg you, if you're watching live stream, I ask you, don't leave this moment without reconciling your life to God. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's your heart. Anyone that will open the door I will come in and sup with him, and he'll come to you as well. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.